If you feel that life is just giving you more than you can handle, please realize that you are not alone. Welcome to Abba Daddy House Girls Speak Out with your hosts, the founders of Abba Daddy House, Myrna Thatcher and Annette Smith. We're here to listen and provide help for you and others. At last, you have a place to speak out and be heard. Now, here are your hosts, Annette and Myrna. Happy Friday. Here we are, and it's just going to be me today. Annette's having some medical issues, and so um, she's not going to be with us today, but we'll catch you up on stuff next week. I hope. We will. I promise. And you know we try to keep our word. So today we have Steve Snyder, who has written a book called Shot Down, and we have so much to talk about. I have read the book. It is awesome. But we're going to start with an excerpt of the book, and then with each break, we're going to when we come back from break, we're going to read an excerpt of the book. So that means you guys can't go anywhere in the next hour because this is an awesome book. You won't want to, to um, miss any of it. So here we go. I threw the extinguisher down, climbed back from between the seats where I had been standing, held the emergency switch on and began calling through the interphone for the crew to jump. The bursting of the Falkworth's 20-millimeter cannons ran around our ship was the first indication that we had been singled out. Then the celestial dome blew up in front of me. After that, I could hear 20-millimeter striking and exploding as they hit the ship. Pieces of equipment and parts of the ship were flying about, striking my feet and legs. When the oxygen cylinders exploded, I didn't realize what had happened. The noise of the explosion was muffled by my helmet and headset. But the concussion stunned me for a few minutes. Someone lighting a match in in a gas-filled room would cause much the same effect as the explosion. Only instead of flames decreasing immediately after the explosion, they seemed to continue all around us with the same intensity. In a half-day state, I became slowly conscious that the entire cockpit was filled with smoke and flames. I must have been knocked unconscious for a period of time. It was difficult to see through the smoke and flames, but I could see the terrified face of Ike, his eyes almost out of his head, looking crazily around him as he tore frantically at his flak suit and safety belt. I think Holbert had already jumped as I couldn't see him at all. As I looked back at Ike after trying to see Holbert, he seemed absolutely mad and out of his head. Then as my mind seemed to clear a little more, I too became absolutely terrified. And we're going to stop right there at that. And we're going to just bring Steve in. Steve Snyder is the author of the book, and he is actually the pilot's son, who um, who we were just talking about. The pilot is actually the one who who wrote that, and that excerpt was a was a letter, right, Steve? Well, actually, it was a diary that my okay. dad wrote after he had been shot down about his plane uh, being attacked. Okay, and so he kept that diary for several months, didn't he? Yes, he uh, he lost the diary. Uh, he was uh, after he was shot down. He was missing in action for seven months, but he evaded capture. Uh, and he wrote that diary, and he lost it uh, during that time. But uh, after the war ended, uh, uh, Army Lieutenant from uh, with the U.S. Occupation Troops at the time uh, was handed the, the diary by a Belgium gentleman who had uh, kept the diary. And then uh, the lieutenant uh, investigated my dad and found out where uh, his home was and then mailed it uh, to his house. And that's how it got back to uh, 
my parents and then eventually to me. So I still have that. It's written on little three by five pieces of paper, individual pieces of paper, you know, so it's 75 years old. Oh, wow. Well, let's just talk about you. Tell us about Steve. You... Okay, um, I'm 71 years old. I was born in Pasadena, California, home of the Rose Bowl. And I was raised up uh, around that area. Actually, I went through the uh, school system in San Marino, uh, uh, California, which is uh, just a nearby city to, to Pasadena. Mm-hmm. The first, the first governor, or the, excuse me, the first mayor of Pasadena was uh, George Patton, uh, General George Patton's father. So that kind of ties into uh, World War II. It does. And I went through uh, a school there in uh, in San Marino, and. Uh, Went on to college at UCLA, where I got a, a bachelor's degree in uh, economics, and then I went into uh, sales, actually, had a 40-year career in sales and sales management. The last 36 years were with a company called Vision Service Plan, VSP, which provides vision care as an employee benefit that corporations offer their employees. Uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with it because mm-hmm. uh, that company covers one ever, out of every six people in the United States. Yeah, it does. It's huge. So I had a long career with them in uh, sales and sales management. I, uh, the last 25 years, uh, I traveled extensively all over the United States, uh, calling on Fortune 500 companies, and then was in charge of our Eastern Sales Division for 15 years. And then I retired in 2009. So as a I'm child, married, uh, well, I'm sorry. I've been married for 34 years and have three uh, three grown sons. All right. So as a child, did you... Did you know that? I mean, you knew your dad was in the Air Force, right? Yes. Growing up, I knew the basics of my dad's World War II history. I knew he was a B-17 pilot. He was stationed uh, in England with the 8th Air Force. His plane was named uh, the Susan Ruth after my oldest sister, Mm -hmm. Susan Ruth Snyder, who was one year old at the time that he went overseas. And then he flew bombing missions over occupied Europe and, and Germany. And then and on February 8th of 1944, his plane was shot down. And as I mentioned, he was missing in action for seven months, but evaded capture and eventually made it back to the United States. But that was pretty much all I knew during my, you know, as I was growing up. Uh, my dad, like most World War II veterans, uh, didn't talk too much about the war. And as most people are, you're interested in your own things, and you don't really care too much about your your parents' history until you get a little older. Right, right. But you got you played army and with your friends. Oh, and, oh, you know. oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. You know, being born in 1947, just uh, you know, a few years after the war ended, war. it was uh, yeah. all the movies were coming out about it. So me and my buddies, when we were. We played army and soldier, and we'd dress up in uh, my dad's uniforms that he brought back uh, from the war. So I, yeah, I was greatly affected by by it. I've always had a great interest in World War II history. Mm-hmm. Did you Did you ever hear? I mean, did your dad ever sit around with others people and talk about the war? Did you ever hear experience any of that? Not really. Um, five of my cr- dad's crew, a uh, B-17 had a 10-man crew, and five right. of them made it back home, but five of them did not. Right. But occasionally he would get together with uh, either members of his crew or some uh, friends that he went through pilot training with, mm-hmm. and they probably talked about it. But again, you know, I was just a kid. Uh, I I just wanted to go back to my room and play with my toys. I didn't want to listen to the adults talking. <laughs> I understand that. 
Very so I planned. missed out probably on a lot of great stories there. Well, that's understandable, though, because it, it's good to be a kid when you're a kid. And, you're right. And, you're right, because then when you're an adult, you can be an adult. So Yeah, I um, guess that's the way it goes. I, we hope so. Um, so your, mom, your dad wasn't originally in the Air Force, was he? No. Uh, as a result of uh, the first peacetime draft in history implemented mm-hmm. by President it's... Franklin Roosevelt in the fall of 1940, right. my dad... Uh, uh, enlisted or was drafted and went and was actually in the army. Uh, he went in April of 1941 and he was stationed mm-hmm. in Fort Lewis, Washington. He yep. was actually in the army for, for a year. And, uh, but then my, uh, he and my mother, Ruth Hempel, uh, they got married, uh, in July of 41. And then a few months later on December 7th of 1941, uh, Pearl Harbor was bombed by right. Japan, and the United States was at a war. And my mother was very, uh, you know, concerned about the uncertain future and very afraid. So she went up to see my dad in Washington uh, that Christmas. And nine months later, Susan Ruth was born. Mm-hmm. And so my dad was thinking, well, how am I going to support my, my new family? She, he has a new bride, uh, a baby on the way, and he didn't think he could do it very well on a private's pay in the Army. So uh, then he volunteered to go into the Air Force in, uh, in 1942, where he could, thought he could make more money, especially if he made it through pilot training, became an officer. Right. What, um, what a decision to make. I can't. I can't even imagine making that type of decision, because I read in the in in the book about the fatality rate of pilots, and how much more it was a risk to being a pilot than even being in the inf- infantry. Yes, a lot of people don't uh, realize that, uh, but being a combat crewman in the Eighth Air Force during World War II was the most dangerous duty assignment in the United States military. Uh, during the war. There were 26,000 men who died in the 8th Air Force. That's more than the entire Marine Corps fighting yeah. in the Pacific. There were another 28,000 uh, men that became prisoners of war after their bombers were knocked out of the sky by either German fighters or German anti-aircraft fire. So, that yeah, it was uh, a really dangerous thing to do. And I, the letters that you're your father wrote to your mother are very endearing. He was very faithful to her. And it sounded like he was very faithful to God also. Yes, my parents, both my parents are very strong Christians as uh, they set a great example for me. Uh, I am too. They were uh, raised Lutherans that I'm Mm -hmm. as as I am a Missouri Synod Lutheran. Uh, They volunteered uh, and gave a lot of their time to the church. My dad was president of the congregation. Uh, I'm an elder at uh, at our church, so they mm-hmm. they had a very strong faith, and that uh, helped them and a lot of other uh, individuals and couples, you know, bear it and make it through the war. I can't, yeah. His his letters just really to your mom really shows his love and and dedication. I can't. I don't know how long it took her to get those letters. You know, the time between him writing them and him and her getting them. I don't remember that in the book. Do do you know that? Well, they, uh, that was the highlight, uh, really, of, 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 for the, both uh, the men uh, who served during the war and their loved ones back in the United States 
whenever they got a letter. And it was a lot, a lot of times it was hit and miss. They wouldn't get any letters for, you know, several days or weeks, but then they'd get like, you know, uh, a bunch of them at, at a time. But that was always a, a highlight to hear, hear, hear from loved ones. And they wrote, oh. uh, quite a bit back and forth to each other. And then I was extremely fortunate that my mother kept all those yes. letters from the war and that reading those was absolutely fascinating. And uh, like you said, my, my dad, uh, in the letters, you know, he, uh, a lot of them uh, dealt with their relationship and their love for, for one another. And the, yes. he was also very candid in his letters about what was happening mm-hmm. he in was. England at the time, what combat missions were like, what yes. uh, life was like on the base, what life was like mm-hmm. in England and London at the time, and uh, escapades of him and his crew. So that was yeah. uh, uh, he made just fascinating. Very de- exactly. He made very descriptive. He's a very historian. I mean, he just he wrote it the way it was. And it's very educational. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky because a lot of people yes, I talk to that have letters, uh, you know, from their dad or a relative from the war, you know, they just said, well, it's cold or I'm doing okay, don't worry about me. And I you know, really didn't get into much detail about what was actually going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was amazing what the, the detail that he did put in those letters. Um, so... The lo- yeah, so there was Susan Ruth, and that's how they named the ship. The the um, right, as, uh, right. He was the first pilot, and as such, he was yep. commander of the of the plane and and the crew, and uh, he mm-hmm. had the last say on what the uh, the the plane was named. The plane was named, and I think that's pretty neat. And um, what an honor for Susan to have that plane and named after her. When we come back from break, we are we. I will read another excerpt from the from the book. And then we will talk with Steve um, a little bit more about the crew and his mom and dad. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Look for Annette and Myrna's book, Turning the Curse into a Blessing, a Testimony of God's Healing Power. The book elucidates the journey of how Annette Smith gained healing from living as a child and other people. The book is available through Amazon.com in both paperback and Kindle formats. Anyone who is looking for guidance from God and feeling that life is hopeless should read this book, Turning the Curse into a Blessing, a Testimony of God's Healing Power. Find it today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Abba Daddy House Incorporated was founded by Myrna Thatcher and Annette Smith. We provide pro bono counseling for those caught in the insurance gap. We also provide basic needs for those who have great difficulty making it from one month to the next. Donations for expanding our business are always appreciated. Remember Philippians 4 verse 3. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Visit AbbaDaddyHouse.org. 
It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Abba Daddy Girls Speak Out. To reach our program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to abadaddyhouse7 at gmail.com. Now, back to Myrna and Annette. As promised, another excerpt from the book. And I'll just kind of read the sentence that I left off with. As I left my seat, Ike had just taken his chute pack from beneath his seat and made his way to the nose hatch to jump. I hesitated momentarily, not knowing what to do, and switched on the autopilot. Although not terrified as before, I was still greatly shaken and afraid. I acted more from instinct. I don't recall any thoughts. I grabbed a fire extinguisher, but it had no more effect on the blaze than an eyedropper. Deciding it would be impossible to save the ship, I threw the extinguisher down, climbed back from between the seats where I had been standing, held the emergency switch on, and began calling through the interphone for the crew to jump. I don't know how long I continued to call, but not getting any response, I felt they had jumped. The fire was getting so hot I could hardly stand it. My neck was burning, and I pulled my scarf over the exposed skin. My nose, cheeks, eyebrows, eyelids, and lower forehead must have been burned when I was using the extinguisher. I don't recall any pain from my face until I was on the ground. It was impossible to go back through the fire to see if they had jumped from the door, excuse me, from the rear of the ship, and as I couldn't get any response from anyone, I left the cockpit. As I crawled down to the escape hatch, I was surprised to see Benny and Dan still in the nose. As I made my way toward them, Benny looked down and saw me. I motioned for him to come. He hit Dan on the arm, and they both dived toward their chutes. We went out through the nose hatch. When I jumped, our, bay, our bomb bay doors were still open. As I crawled through the escape hatch, I recalled the discussion we had about clearing them when jumping, and I wondered if I would. I'm going to leave you there with that one. So, so Steve, what what led you into writing this fantastic book? Well, as I, as I mentioned, I retired in 2009 mm-hmm. uh, from my career job, and that's that's when we I had the time to really delve into my dad's war history in more detail. Uh, I just wanted to go through all the material that they kept through. From the war years, when they kept quite a bit, like the letters that my dad had written and the diary uh, that he that he wrote, and I just after reading those, I just became fascinated with the story of my dad and his crew. It became my passion. I started reading book after book about the air war over Europe. Went on the internet, spent countless hours doing research, downloading declassified military documents. I joined a number of World War II organizations. Started going to uh, their reunions, listening to veterans tell their stories. And finally, uh, three years uh, into this, I just came to the conclusion that the story of my dad and his crew was so unique and so compelling that people needed to to know about it and read about it. And so uh, in 2012, I decided to write a book. Wow. And it was uh, released in uh, 2014, August of 2014. And uh, since that time, it's won... 25 book awards, and it's sold in the gift stores of most all the 
major air museums in the, across the United States, and it's totally changed my life. <laughs> I went from being a retiree to really I now I work full time again uh, promoting the book. Uh, I do lots of speaking, uh, making PowerPoint presentations to all sorts of different organizations. I go to air shows all across the United States, signing copies of my book. So it's. Uh, it's it, like I say, it's really, really changed my life. It was uh, wow. an honor and uh, a privilege to write about these guys. So as you went to the to the reunions and, and, and listened to other um, veterans tell their story, you, you mentioned that your, that your dad's story and his crew, their story was unique. What was unique about theirs? What was different about theirs compared to others? Well, most folks about the air war over Europe, uh, they kind of fall in two categories. One, with uh, they're either very large in scope. They talk about, you know, uh, lots of combat missions, lots of bomb groups, lots of uh, uh, crews, or they're very uh, specific and narrow in scope. They talk about one man's experience uh, okay. about either flying missions or uh, being a prisoner of war, but. This book is unique as it follows one 10-man crew and what happened to each one of them. And basically, anything that could have happened to a guy uh, during the war you know, happened yep. to one of my dad's uh, crew members. That's right. Exactly. And also, I don't even... a thing that's unique about uh, the book is it also is about all the courageous Belgian people that risked their lives trying to help uh, the airmen after they bailed out. Uh, that really doesn't get covered too much about the underground and, and, and resistance and how brave and courageous they were. You know, and since you opened that door, why don't you um, tell us a little bit about the where your dad, because your dad... I don't want to tell the story. Let me think. Do I really want to let this go now? Um, yeah. <laughs> sure. Tell us about um, your dad, and he did survive, obviously, because you're here. <laughs> so they know that. Yeah, I would, yeah. yeah, you wouldn't be here. Okay. So tell us about the Belgian people that helped him. Don't go clear into the future just for that helped him in the book. Okay. Um well, after my dad bailed out, uh, his, he came down in, his, uh, in some trees, and his parachute got hung up in the trees, and he was dangling 20 feet off the ground and couldn't get down. But fortunately for him, a couple young Belgian men uh, came to his rescue before the Germans got to him. They went back to a farmhouse, got a ladder and a rope to help, to help them down uh, the tree, and it was... The, Early afternoon at that time, so they told him to just stay put and hide uh, because it was too dangerous to move him with German patrols combing the area looking for him. So they came back that night, took him to a, uh, a farmhouse. He stayed there one night. Uh, they thought it was too dangerous for him to stay there any longer than that. So after that, they came and moved him. And after that, he was moved from place to place to place. Uh, how long he stayed at a given uh, location depended on how brave the Belgian people were who lived there and how dangerous the Belgium underground thought it was for him to stay there. And he, uh, he might stay one night at one house or six weeks at another house. But these Belgian people that did hit him, as I mentioned, were unbelievably brave. The Belgian people, they were brave. In the book, they would um, hide them in places. Like at one point, I think it was Howard, um, Steve's dad, actually they had a place, the Belgian people had a place in their roof, um, that was an escape hatch, and so they, I think it was Steve's dad, and I'm not sure, but they put him up on the roof, 
and closed that hatch because the Germans actually had come into the house to search for him. And he was, um, he stayed the night up on the roof. And again, I'm not sure that was him. Steve could have done that, but obviously we've lost Steve. So I will try to ad lib as much as I can. And, and so they stayed there. The Belgian people would um, make, it's called a hut out in the woods. And I think it's called Champagne Woods. And he, they would hide several of the airmen out there, not just Americans, um, from Steve's, I mean, from Howard, which is Steve's dad, his ship, his airplane, but from other um, countries, would hide out in this, in this, um, in in the woods, in the hut, and it was just exactly how it sounds, a hut, and all these men would be there, and. He, they would stay there for several days. And, well, actually, they, yeah, for several days, quite a few days. And the Belgian people would come and risk their lives, of course, to bring them food. And not all the Belgian people were, were, were underground. Not all the Belgian people would take these people and protect them, the soldiers. Not just the American soldiers, but other countries. And they would not do that. They would be... I'm Lerna, I think I'm back. Okay, good. I don't know what happened. What I was I'm, just telling people that um, that one of the... I don't know if it was your dad or not, so please correct me. The One one of the soldiers uh, that had to be put up on the roof because the, the Germans came in to search the house and there was a little trap door thingy and he went up on the roof. Was that your dad or one of the other ones? Actually, that, that was my dad. And okay. just this, uh, this past year, I was... Uh, in Belgium in September, and uh, that house is still there. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I'm going to plan to make a documentary about the book, and so I was there with a film crew filming, and the gentleman who lived there poked his head out of the uh, second story and asked, you know, what we were doing. He could speak uh, English. Uh When I told him my dad had been hidden there at that house, he invited us us in. So he took us up into that uh, little room and that trap door and showed us where my dad crawled out and then it stayed on, the, on top of the roof. Oh, my goodness. So how did that, what, emotionally, because, you know, how did that feel for you to do that? Oh, just, just relating that to you right now, I have goosebumps. Oh, Because um, it was just, you, you go up these stairs and, uh, and climb up into this little attic and there's cobwebs in it. And there's this little window that you kind of prop open. And, you know, my dad was six foot three, so he's a pretty oh big goodness. guy. And uh, the roof line was very steep. And uh, he was up there all night in the cold because the, mm-hmm. the man who lived there, uh, Maurice Bayou, said he'd come back and get him after the Germans left. But he never came back until the next day. So as right. you mentioned, my dad had to stay up there the entire night on, the, mm-hmm. on this tiled roof. <laughs> oh, oh it was incredible. It, yeah, and but it it's it is incredible that these people would risk that much for um, our soldiers and other people, uh, other country soldiers also. And I, I was telling yes, them about if, if the German secret police, the Gestapo, found out that they were aiding down airmen, they'd be arrested, tortured, yeah. and either shot or sent to concentration camps. And some of the Belgian people that aided my dad and his other crew members met that fate. Yes, they did. I, I thought it was interesting, um, and I, I apologize for not remembering her name, um, Steve, but the woman who actually ran the underground, and she did, they did get her, the, the Gestapo did come in and um, torture her 
and and will question her. And she admitted that she was the head of the of the underground. And then they let her go because they couldn't believe that a woman would do that. Uh, you're I, talking about uh, um, her code name was Dee Dee. Mm-hmm. Uh, she actually ran an escape route. Uh, typically, okay. when the underground came across down airmen, they tried tried to get them back through England through various escape routes uh, right. down okay. through into France through into Spain over the Pyrenees or over the Pyrenees into Spain and then out through uh, British control Gibraltar. And Dee Dee ran the most famous escape route called the yeah. Comet Line. There you go. And yeah. she was only uh, in her early 20s. Mm-hmm. And as you said, she was arrested by the Gestapo and tortured. And then she admitted that she had headed up this group. But they didn't think a young girl like that could ever, ever uh, uh, be capable of doing such a thing. So they let her go. <laughs> That's That was amazing to me. I thought, all right. So, all right, we're, we're going into break again. When we come back, we will read another excerpt and talk more about the experience of of Steve's dad and mom and what's happened in Belgium to honor, to continue to honor these soldiers. And we will talk about that when we get back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Abba Daddy House Incorporated was founded by Myrna Thatcher and Annette Smith. We provide pro bono counseling for those caught in the insurance gap. We also provide basic needs for those who have great difficulty making it from one month to the next. Donations for expanding our business are always appreciated. Remember Philippians 4, verse 3. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Visit AbbaDaddyHouse.org. Connect with us, and we'll connect with you. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on LinkedIn. Get the first word about happenings with the network, where our next live event will be, and what's up with our hosts. Look up Voice America on LinkedIn. Look for Annette and Myrna's book, Turning the Curse into a Blessing, a Testimony of God's Healing Power. The book elucidates the journey of how Annette Smith gained healing from living as a child and other people. The book is available through Amazon.com in both paperback and Kindle formats. Anyone who is looking for guidance from God and feeling that life is hopeless should read this book, Turning the Curse into a Blessing, a Testimony of God's Healing Power. Find it today. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Abba Daddy Girls Speak Out. To reach our program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to abbadaddyhouse7 at gmail.com. Now, back to Myrna and Annette. All right, so this is the last excerpt from the book that I'm going to read, and I'll back up just a little bit. Because it says, as I crawled through the escape hatch, I recalled the discussion we had about clearing them when jumping, and I wondered if I would. I did. I had been a good while without oxygen and was feeling the effects as I fell. We were 20,000 feet. I was determined to make a delayed jump, and as I extended my arms to stop somersaulting, 
I caught a glimpse of what I thought were eight billowing shoots. And remember, this isn't in the, in the diary, but remember there were ten crew members, and he saw only eight shoots. Someone had told me that we would fall about 10,000 feet a minute, so I started counting to 60 as I fell through the clouds, vapor and then clear air. But after reaching 60, I still couldn't see the ground. I started counting again, but gave it up and watched the ground. As I came out of a cloud, the earth appeared for a second and then disappeared again as I reached another cloud. I was falling into the country. There were little clusters of white farm buildings, green squares of pasture, and dark brown, irregular, and leafless woods. Then as the earth appeared again, I waited until I could distinguish objects very clearly and pulled the ripcord. It seemed natural to wonder if the chute would open. I knew, some enough, I knew soon enough as the air caught, filled the chute, and the jerk nearly snapped off my head. The rushing air roaring in my ear stopped suddenly, and a most wonderful and peaceful quiet settled over me. It seemed as if I had come out of that hell above into a heaven of peace and rest. Up above, I could now hear the heavy, deep sound of the forts mingled with angry rasps of the fighters. But with the peaceful country coming up to meet me, baked in sunshine, the war and all that had happened only a few seconds before seemed like a bad dream long ago. A light breeze seemed to carry me toward a wood, and I reached up to grab the shrouds in order to guide myself into a pasture. I found I was so weak I could hardly lift myself up in my harness. I was too close to the ground to pilot my course. I placed my feet together and resignedly watched the trees rush up at me. So he landed in the trees. So Steve, as we go into this segment, let's talk about um, your dad obviously was hidden like we talked about and then he got he needed your dad was an action guy and I think every soldier that I read about in this book was an action guy they didn't want to sit around they wanted action they wanted to do something and your dad decided to do something share with us what your dad decided to do okay (laughs) well as I mentioned uh, the underground tried to get these down flyers back to England uh, but something always went wrong trying to get yep. my dad out. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the line was compromised by infiltrators or, or, or what have you. And uh, wasn't the there about four attempts? On him. Wasn't there about you know, four attempts? With his plane knocked out of the sky, uh, he, he's on fire. He comes to, has to parachute out. Comes down in a foreign country. Has no idea where he is. Uh, can't speak the language, doesn't know where his buddy, what happened to his buddies, can't communicate with the military. And any of these people that are helping him could be collaborators and turn him over exactly. to the Gestapo. So it had to be very stressful. And finally, he just got tired of hiding. Um, you know, there, as you mentioned, there's episodes in the book where he was almost discovered by the Gestapo. Mm-hmm. So he decided to uh, join the French resistance called the Mackey. Uh, they were ragtag guerrilla groups, uh, independent groups, small groups spread throughout uh, France. Uh, word came that the Allies had landed uh, in Normandy on June 6th, and he wanted to get back in the fight. As you mentioned, he was an action guy, and he had that year's uh, training uh, in the infantry, so he knew yes. how to fight on the ground. Mm-hmm. So he hooked up with the French resistance, and... Uh, 
these guerrilla groups, they, were to, they harassed the Germans. They would uh, sabotage German railroad lines, disrupt communications, attack convoys, uh, assassinate German officers, and they got their instructions over the BBC to uh, the British and were supplied by airdrops uh, from the British. So he, he fought with the French resistance uh, for uh, a couple months. Uh, and uh, there are several episodes uh, in the book about their uh, Matthews encounters, uh, the resistance groups' encounters with Germans. And then finally, on September 2nd, uh, about seven months after he bailed out, uh, word came that there were U.S. troops on a little nearby village of Trelon, France. So he went into the, the town square, went up to an army major, actually, with an element of Patton's, uh, General Patton's Third Army, would come up through France after D Day. And identified himself, uh, and they uh, interrogated him and was satisfied that he, you know, he was a down German and not a, a, a German spy. And uh, he went to Paris and then and back to England and uh, uh, came back to safety uh, from England. He sent a telegram to my mother, notifying her that he was alive, because she didn't know if he was alive or dead at that right. time. Actually, my other sister, Nancy, was born while he was missing in action. So that was mm-hmm. really tough on my mom. Mm. Now, did she have, what was what was your mom's support? Was she back with her family? With Who was her support during all of this? Uh, yeah, she lived in uh, Pasadena, and uh, okay. her parents lived in Pasadena, and okay. uh, my father's parents lived in Pasadena, and then she also had uh, three sisters who, who, who've lived in the area. So she had quite a bit of family support and again, uh, uh, a lot of support from her, from her church as well. So she did have uh, quite a bit of support. She had, she got a loan from her parents to buy a little house there in Pasadena where she and uh, Susan, uh, lived. Mm-hmm. So- and also the support of the other, uh, relatives of the crew of the 10 man crew yeah. uh, were married. The other were not, but she communicated with wives, uh, mothers, uh, sweethearts, right. uh, and lots of bits excerpts of those letters are in the book that make yes. it personal. So they had that little support group within the relatives of the crew. I, I can't imagine, um, how some of the wives, you know, the wives whose husbands didn't come back, you know, they, I could, cause there is a lot of, emotion in the book about and you can feel it you know you can feel Ruth's relief that that Howard is safe it, but and how the, the other ladies you know well, then if he if Howard's safe then you know my family member is safe and they're going to come home or they're going to you know I'm going to get the news and and you already know that that they aren't coming home and it's just you know you just I my heart just went out for him because you could feel the yeah that was very uh, you know heart 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 wrenching and as I mentioned five of the crew made it back five of them did yeah. not and uh, yeah for the people to yeah. find out what happened to those other crew members you need to read the book but uh, yes. as you mentioned yep. my dad came back or else I wouldn't be here that's right but we're not going to tell you who came back and who didn't because you need to read the book because you can pick up on all of that and I, it is so historically correct and so detailed I learned. I want to tell you thank you for teaching me because I thought I learned something for um, that the word GI that that I thought it was just GI and come to find out that's not at all 
how it what it really is. It started out with um, let me see galvanized iron used to denote the it's equipment. Good. Yeah, the equipment made from it for the U.S. Army, and then later it just broadened to government issue, and then you know. Then referring to all equipment of the Army and then further broadening to meaning any member of the Army. So I thought, wow, I like that because I, if I learn, if I read something, I want to I learn something. So I, I just, you guys got to get the book. That's all I got to say. And so tell us about um, what's happening today in your mom and dad when they were alive and I think this is interesting, is the fact that um, his, his mom, his dad, both parents died in, what, 2007? Correct. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And this is the, I mean, this is like the perfect love story, guys. This is why we really think, he's trying, Steve's trying to make a documentary, but we really, Annette and I talked about this to Steve, and we think it really should be a movie. This would be a perfect movie. And it's, all you have to do is follow the book. But, Steve, um, Steve's parents, they both died in 2007, and this is why I'm saying it's a perfect love story, because as a therapist, this is what happens when two people are in love as much as Howard and Ruth were. Howard died in April of 2007, and five months later, Ruth died. And when we talked with, um, when we talked with Steve, he told us that the doctor said that cause of death was... Failure to thrive. Inability to thrive. Inability to thrive. And actually, in last in some shows, we gave up because life wasn't worth going on without her uh, loving husband. Yeah, I mean, talk about a love story. Oh my goodness. And talk and and Steve, that that had to set an example of how to be a husband. I bet your wife is it is Glenda, right? I bet she is. Yeah, Glenda. I bet she has one of the best husbands in the world. If you followed your parents' <laughs> example, well, my you know my parents you know growing up, I thought they had the you know just an, uh, every marriage has issues. But to me, uh, as their son, I mean, it seemed like the perfect marriage. Uh, they were so in love with one another. They treated each other so kindly and uh, were so devoted to each other. You know, they set an example that uh, really, you know, it was, was hard to match, and that was my idea of the, of the perfect marriage. And, you know, my wife and I have a, have a great marriage uh, as well. Well, you had a great marriage. My family. parents were married for, uh, they, they made 65 years. They uh, made 65, uh, wow. Before they passed away, so that was mm-hmm. good. That was that is good. That is awesome because you they yeah you guys need to get the book and read that love story. You guys really it's 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 a remarkable love story. So the they were able to go to Belgium. They were contacted by someone, right? Doctor right. Paul. <laughs> Doctor. Um, it's funny. It's a, kind of a funny story. Uh, my parents had gone to Belgium and. Because they stayed in touch with some of my dad's helpers, and they they uh, went over a couple times and met with them. But in 1988, my dad got a letter from the Dr. Paul Delahaye, who had formed a uh, Belgium American Foundation to honor and remember the U.S. troops that helped liberate uh, Belgium from Nazi occupation. And they were ded- dedicating a monument to the liberation of Belgium, and invited my parents to come. And my parents or my dad never 
didn't know this guy from from Adam, a complete stranger, and they were mm-hmm. talking about whether or not they should go to it or not. And then they right. got a second communication with the itinerary or the, the program, and they listed my dad as the keynote speaker. And so he said, Ruth, He's, I guess we have to go. I guess so. That's awesome. Um, and Dr. Delahaye has, when we come back, I actually want to read... Um, an excerpt out of the book about Dr. Um, Paul Delahaye that uh, when he was 13 years old and what has been written here about him and how he experienced the difference between the German soldiers and the American soldiers. So when we get back, I will be reading that and we'll continue our conversation and wrap it up with Steve. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Look for Annette and Myrna's book, Turning the Curse into a Blessing, a testimony of God's healing power. The book elucidates the journey of how Annette Smith gained healing from living as a child and other people. The book is available through Amazon.com in both paperback and Kindle formats. Anyone who is looking for guidance from God and feeling that life is hopeless should read this book, Turning the Curse into a Blessing, a Testimony of God's Healing Power. Find it today. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Abba Daddy House Incorporated was founded by Myrna Thatcher and Annette Smith. We provide pro bono counseling for those caught in the insurance gap. We also provide basic needs for those who have great difficulty making it from one month to the next. Donations for expanding our business are always appreciated. Remember Philippians 4, verse 3. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Visit AbbaDaddyHouse.org. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Abba Daddy Girls Speak Out. To reach our program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to abadaddyhouse7 at gmail.com. Now, back to Myrna and Annette. So I'm going to talk, I'm going to read a little insert about Dr. Paul De- DeLay, who was instrumental in in building, um, he did a lot of research um, and helped Steve out, and he also built some memorials for the Americans and other national um, soldiers that helped free Belgium, and this is about um, Paul. He was 13 years old in 1944 at the time the Germans were finally forced out of his town and the first time he met any Americans. He remembers it was precisely 2.45 p.m. on Liberation Day when an eccentric local priest rode his bike through the town proclaiming the arrival of U.S. troops. He was hollering, the Americans are coming, the Americans are coming. 
DeLahey exclaimed, he was spreading the good word as a priest should. What impressed him the most, he said, was the stark contrast in the attitude of the GIs to that of the strict German Nazi. And this is his quote, the calm and relaxed demeanor of the Americans told me everything would be all right now. Dr. DeLahey said, we knew we would make, we knew we made it through. That feeling made a lasting impression on him, and he became the driving force behind the creation of the foundation in 1984 and the memorials and monuments he would eventually build. And Steve, you'll be going back this year for a reunion, a, a what, an anniversary of the of the yes, monuments. They, they uh, well, on the the uh, for these memorials, uh, they have a, a ceremony every year on the anniversary of the event uh, that involved that uh, memorial. But the big celebrations are every year on September second, mm-hmm. which is the Liberation Day in Belgium. And uh, I first went over in 1994, my first trip to Belgium uh, with my parents, and that's when it became personal for me because I was there with my parents and saw everything firsthand. But then I've gone back over uh, for the 60th, the 70th, and then this next year will be the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Belgium, my dad's plane being shot down, and the celebrations Mm -hmm. last several days. They're wonderful events. Uh, just uh, very emotional, uh, very happy. Uh, all the villagers come out, all the dignitaries. They're just fantastic. Mm. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, Paul Delahaye died uh, in uh, 2013, but the association uh, is now uh, run by one of his daughters, Crystal Delahaye, uh, who is a dear, dear friend. That's good. That legacy is going on. And I know this is kind of out of sequence, audience, but I just want you to know that in that bo- in the book, because I it totally blasted me away when I read it. Hans Burger is one of the German fighter pilots who shot down Howard's B-17 on February 8, 1944. He's in the book. He is in the book, and he and it's it's it was he provided insight from the perspective of a German pilot. So. I think that's yes, I was I was uh I was so fortunate to be able to find uh Hans Berger, one of the two German pilots that attacked my dad's uh B seventeen. The other pilot crashed, his plane crashed and he was killed, uh Siegfried Merrick, but uh, Hans bailed out and made it through the war and luckily for me he became a translator after the war and speaks perfect English. So he gave me some wonderful insight that's in the book about what it was like to go up against the eighth Air Force and Hans and I have become uh Good friends. In fact, I just sent him uh, an email uh, yesterday, uh, wishing him, wow. uh, uh, him and his uh, a happy New Year. He's ninety-five years old now. Ninety-five. Goodness, I mean that's awesome. That's that is an awesome thing. So another reason why you got to buy the book. I mean, it just blows you away when Hans Berger's name comes up. Who's carrying? Who is? Because. I know this, I don't want to sound morbid, but Steve, who's carrying the legacy on for you? I mean, Dr. DeLay had, has two daughters carrying on the legacy for him. Who, When it comes to it, who's going to carry on the legacy for you? Well, I have three sons, as I mentioned. Uh, they're mm-hmm. all very uh, interested in it, but probably uh, my youngest son, Clayton, uh, who's gone with me uh, three times over to, to Belgium, uh, will be more of a driving force than uh, uh, my other two sons for various circumstances uh, to keep the memory alive. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm also uh, in contact with many, many relatives of my dad's crew, and hopefully they'll uh, do that as well. Yes. So there's a, the association there in, in, in Belgium will continue it. Uh, Paul also had a, a son from another marriage who was very involved with the uh, association in, in, as well. And uh, my son, Clayton, uh, he's, he's assisting me on uh, in making the documentary, so we're very in, involved in that. Okay. And one question that I've saved to the last, how... Have you? How has your life changed? And I'm talking probably more emotionally and relationally from before you started doing all of this research to today, after you've written the book. Oh, gosh. Well, I always had a real close relationship with my parents, but I think this just fortifies uh, that. And, you know, I always respected and, and honored and loved my dad, but, you know, really delving in and, and, and learning, you know, what he went through and the bravery and courage that that he had, you know, being shot down, hiding, and then having the fortitude to join the French resistance and risk his life fighting against the, uh, the Germans, because if they caught him, they would have shot him on the spot. And, and both the, 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 the sacrifice of all the... Uh, his crew, and really all the men who served in the uh, Eighth Air Force and in World War II who gave their all, people just don't realize uh, what they went through to preserve uh, the the freedoms that we enjoy today. Exactly. The the world. People, they just, unless you learn about this and, and appreciate the history, um, you just don't, you know, know how fortunate we are uh, to live in such a wonderful uh, country today and exactly. what, they, what they did for us. And we can't let that memory fade. No, we cannot. Not ever. So why don't you give, um, Steve, give contact information, maybe a, a website that people can go to to get your book or that information. Sure. For you. Uh, well, it's, uh, the book's available most anywhere. Most people go on Amazon uh, to get it. It's available as uh, hardcover, softcover, uh, ebook, all formats, and also an audio book. If someone would like a signed copy of the book, they can go to my website, to the homepage, which is stevesnyderauthor.com, and there's a little uh, button you can press to uh, request uh, an autographed uh, book personalized uh, to you. Okay. And actually, I have Facebook pages of uh, Steve Snyder. I have a personal page, and then also Steve Snyder, uh, author of Shot Down. Okay. And if they have any, maybe if they have, if any listeners have any stories that you can share with Steve that maybe he doesn't know about, um, are you are you um, open to that, Steve? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Uh, they can email me at uh, Steve at stevesnyderauthor.com. And on my website, you know, you can, uh, my telephone number's there, okay. my address okay. if you want me to write, write to me or, or whatever. Right, because this is worldwide, so if somebody, and we do have listeners in Germany, and so all over the world. So yeah, A lot of people read the book in uh, the Netherlands and Germany, and right. uh, are, are, okay. uh, really a lot in uh, right. England, because so, the 8th Air Force was stationed there, and that's right. an impact of uh, Exactly. But Steve, I just want, on behalf of Annette and me, we want to thank you for being here today. And we want to just pray that God will bless your work as you continue your legacy and of, of honoring our American soldiers and those foreign soldiers. 
and we appreciate what you've done. And people, I listeners, really, you need to get this book. It's it's impactful. It's very, very good. You can reach us on godsgirl7.com, Twitter, godsgirl7, or abadaddyhouse7 at Gmail, or our website, abadaddygirls.com. Thank you so much for listening. And next week, I think we're going to do something about bullying. Um, I think that's what Annette and I have been talking about. So don't be a bully. And we'll talk about that next week. Thank you for listening. And Steve, again, thank you so much for being our guest today. Well, thank you, Myrna. It was a real pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. You're welcome. Thank you for being here this week. Be sure to join hosts Annette Smith and Myrna Thatcher for another edition of Abadaddy Girls Speak Out next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Enjoy the upcoming weekend. 